Hello, I'm Alex Shakes. In this episode, you'll be hearing from Tom Clarkson, Andrew Shovlin, and David Tremaine on the brand new, renamed Perez Nation. This is really happening. You are really watching Sergio Perez winning Sakir for his first ever Formula One Grand Prix victory. Esteban Ocon is going to hang on and take his first podium. Lance Stroll will make it a 1-3 for Racing Point, who have won their first Grand Prix as well. And Mexico has a Grand Prix winner for the first time since 1970 in an extraordinary race, executed brilliantly from the man who was last on lap one at turn four and wins. What an amazing Grand Prix that was. In fact, what an amazing 10 days of Formula One. Two races in Bahrain, both of them absolutely sensational. And AJ, we're recording this 24 hours after the event. I am still on an absolute high. How about you? It is one of those race weeks where you find yourself waking up the next day and you're sad that it's over. You are delighted with what you've seen. What an incredible few days, as you say, for Formula One. From the moment that Roman Grosjean appeared out of the car and hopped over the barrier from the moment that we got word that everyone was all right down there and that he uh, had only minor injuries for the size of that accident. Formula One has had one of the most extraordinary weeks in years. TC, I hate to bring it up, but you're a pretty experienced guy at this covering F1 thing. Can you remember anything like this? No, absolutely not. Not from, I mean, the new cycle has been incredible. Just give us a feel, because obviously I'm in Bahrain, and give us a feel from the UK point of view. The newspapers on Monday morning last week, tell me about them. Was it front page, back page, middle pages, everything? It was, it was. I think when you get an image like escaping a fireball, then it made some front pages, it made all the back pages, the genuine sentiment across the board, miracle that Formula One and Roman Grosjean got away with that. Then you had, as you would have heard with our podcast, the correct praise for previously unsung heroes suddenly pushed to the forefront. Uh, Dr. Ian Roberts and Alan van der Merwe, brilliant to hear from them. They basically consumed the news cycle for 24 hours. And then the big news Lewis Hamilton, unfortunately, contracting COVID-19. Would it be Stoffel? Would it be George? What were you thinking at that exact moment? I really thought it was going to be Stoffel van Dorn because I couldn't see what Mercedes were going to gain if George got in the car. And this was pretty unlikely, I thought outperformed Valtteri, you would have an extreme headache. You would have a driver facing a return to Williams knowing that he is capable of running at the front of a Grand Prix. And you would have a number two who had been borderline destroyed with his experiences of the last three Grand Prix. No way I thought Mercedes would do that. But Mercedes did do that. They wanted an answer to the question. And TC, should we start there? We got an answer to what would happen if you put George Russell in a Mercedes. And I've thought about this. I don't think it's hyperbolic. I thought that was a sensational weekend from him. Every bit as good as Max Verstappen back in 2016. I think that's quite a good comparo in terms of he went from a Toro Rosso to a race winning Red Bull and delivered. And George did exactly that uh, as well in the Mercedes. 
And let's not forget, he didn't fit the car. He was incredibly yeah. uncomfortable. And it was his calmness that surprised me from day one. When he turned up at the track on the Thursday, every interview he gave, he was he was exactly the same guy as if he'd been wearing Williams clothing. It was he was not he didn't seem to be nervous. The magnitude of the situation didn't seem to be getting to him, and it ref- and it was reflected in how he drove the car. And I just wish I'd seen a little bit more fight from Valtteri Bottas. Now, yes, he made a few mistakes on Friday, and Quali he took pole, uh, probably a great lap from Valtteri. But in the race, that moment. T- t- the, the moment from the race that stands out for me is when George went around the outside of turn seven to pass Valtteri. Now, yes, he had fresher tires, etc. But I would love to have seen Valtteri just push him a little bit wide there. Say, no, no. But yet Valtteri held the inside and sort of let him stay on the outside. And I think it wouldn't have upset the Mercedes bosses if he had lent on. I think they would have expected him to lean on him a bit and say, no. No, no, no. I'm the senior guy here. You just stay there for a minute, boy. And yet he didn't do that. So bad weekend for Valtteri. Incredible weekend, as you say, for George Russell. About 50 things stand out from that race. But the thing for Valtteri that I think will hurt him is when he came out of the pits, turned to Alex Brundling commentary and said, Valtteri has been with this team, with the evolution of this car for all these years. He must have the experience now in this second half of the race to eat into that gap. We see him changing things on the steering wheel, corner by corner, settings being adjusted all the time, even with just 11 turns and the shortest lap of the year. Surely there was something in the know-how to outthink George Russell, and it wasn't going to happen. George Russell was going to win that Grand Prix. Absolutely. And what happens next? For Mercedes, put yourself in Toto Wolff's shoes, Alex. What does he do now? He got the answer he was looking for. We know now that George Russell really is the real deal. He outperformed the senior man, as you've just said. What does he do for 2021? Well, you mentioned Spain 2016, and I think there's a big lesson there. When Max Verstappen beat Kimi Raikkonen to win his first Grand Prix, Kimi Raikkonen had a lot of that Grand Prix to work out a way past. Yes, it is difficult to overtake around the circuit of Barcelona, Catalonia, as we all know from years of experience. (laughs) Can't wait to go back. Can't wait to go back. But he had a long time to make that move. Couldn't make the move. Didn't try to make the move like the other two, Ricardo and Vettel, behind That should have been assigned to Ferrari that whilst Kimi Raikkonen is a brilliant presence and it has been a superb driver in Formula One that maybe his best days were behind him. Now, if they'd removed him from the team at the end of the year, you bring in someone else, maybe Sebastian Vettel raises his game. Maybe we get an answer that Ferrari then got when he was in the middle of a championship battle that Sebastian of this era is not the Sebastian that won the four titles. If you stay with Valtteri Bottas now, knowing that there was a driver who jumped in the car, immediately outperformed him, George isn't going to get slower from this point on. Why would Mercedes run the slower driver? It wouldn't do Lewis Hamilton any favors. It wouldn't do Mercedes any favors. It wouldn't do Formula One any favors. It is brutal. 
But I think that now they know who the faster driver is immediately. George will not get slower from here on in. I think Toto Wolff has a really hard decision to make. Or not so hard from what you're saying. And, and I think this decision is different to the Ferrari one because take your mind back to 2016. Who was available to replace Kimi Raikkonen at that time for 2017? I'm trying, I'm racking my brains to think who they might have got. Whereas now we know that George Russell can be made available because Williams is part of you know, he's a young, he's a Mercedes young driver and Williams have their power unit. They managed to extricate George for one race. Surely they can do it for 23 next year. So George is available. And uh, I loved Alex, how he said on the radio after the race, I, I hope, I hope we get an opportunity to do this. Again. But it was a correction, wasn't it? We'll give this opportunity again. I, I hope we get this opportunity again. Thank you. Now, well done, mate. You really showed your metal today. Really showed that. Because George Russell is a man who knows how to communicate. I have to say, it's one of the things that I always underline. Been very lucky to commentate on some very, very talented young drivers. I have never met a more clear communicator in the six years I've been doing junior formula than George Russell. He has an ability to just say what he wants, carry a team with him. There are other drivers that if they said the same words that George say, they would irritate the team. He just has a mannerism where he communicates so clearly and he's done it from a very early age. He's been mocked sometimes for how demanding he's been, but didn't you hear it in Friday practice immediately like, I want this change, I want this change, I want this change. Could have said it in the debrief, said it on the team radio, knowing that it would go out to all of us. He is a man who uses his brain when he communicates and it's a huge strength. I think it's a large reason that he was... He was at the front immediately. And he's pin sharp. In the post-qualifying press conference, he was correcting Valtteri at one point. Valtteri said something <laughs> that was... In, and, and you were like, I was thinking, crikey, how self-assured to just come in and in a public forum like that, start correcting the senior man. But that's what I was saying earlier, not intimidated by the situation or the people around him at all. I think overall, we'll look back at the Sakir Grand Prix wide-eyed and open mouth for years to come but I think it was one Grand Prix lost and many Grand Prix victories gained in the future with that drive for George Russell yep and I think he can put pressure on Mercedes now and say I want the main chance and if you're not going to give it to me then quite frankly I'm going to start looking elsewhere so there's a lot of chat about Lewis Hamilton still being in negotiations with the team for next year is it going to affect things George's performance out of nowhere TC well, I think Lewis is thinking, damn, why didn't I get this deal across the line <laughs> earlier in the year? Because, I mean, of course, Toto Wolff is saying that uh, it's not going to affect the negotiations at all. But Toto's a smart guy. So obviously it is in that he now knows that he has a brilliant fullback in George Russell. I think if George Russell was... Uh, promoted to that team next year, he would immediately become a championship contender. Without doubt. So therefore he can use that. Toto can use that in his negotiations with Lewis Hamilton and say, you want 30 million? I haven't got 30 million. And I've got also got a, a young guy who's going to do a great job for me if you're not going to drive this car. So I think let's not beat about the bush. Lewis Hamilton is going to come back next year. He wants that eighth world title. But I think the deal will not be as good now, post George Russell, than it would have been before. There you go. Well, you know, the old adage, a week is a long time. In Formula One, apparently. <laughs> well, I know you're worried that we haven't heard from friend of the pod, 
Andrew Shovlin speaks to this podcast, whether he's had a good day or a bad day. And the director of trackside engineering for Mercedes caught up with TC after an uncharacteristically tough day for Mercedes. The key issue for us was the problem with the tyres in the pit stop when we had that safety car. And we thought we'll bring them in. We had gap. We could go onto the medium tyre. Now, we haven't had enough time to get to, to get an absolute and thorough understanding of what went on. But we have found a smoking gun. And that's to do with how the radio system prioritises messages when we're, for instance, when Ron is calling out um, the crews and getting them to get the tyres ready for the two drivers. And there were a number of broadcasts at that time on the radio system. Now, the system knows to prioritise um, the messages coming from Ron because the most important thing is the tyres are there, more so than whatever a driver says or whatever someone else in the crew might say. But it looks like there is a period whereby the system is deciding to let the prioritised message through. and We missed a key bit of the broadcast such that half of the tyre collectors didn't get the message and it looks like half of them did. Therefore, we've got the cars coming in and, and all the tyres are not ready in the pit lane. Um, now, then it obviously looks like a sort of mess of, you know, as, as not really understanding what we're doing. But the, the issue all comes down to this sort of root cause where we, we lost a, a key message at a key point there was very little time between the safety car and George coming into the pits. <clears throat> and that's, as I said, that's, you know, we found this smoking gun. Um, we just need to go through all the logs of everything to see um, how that, you know, how that was working. And, and once we've got a complete understanding of that and filled in a few of the blanks that we're not certain of at the moment, we can then look at a solution for the next race in Abu Dhabi. Can we just take it back a step? Why did you need to make that pit stop? You were on the hard tyre and it looked like you could go to the end of the race. Um, yeah, we could have gone to the end of the race. Um, you know, and in hindsight, if you can say, yeah, we, you know, if we stayed out, if we'd avoided the issue, that would have been brilliant. But as a racing team, you can't be afraid of doing a pit stop and you can't be afraid of doing a pit stop under pressure. And we do hundreds of these in races under pressure double stacked, all sorts of things, and, and they go well. And the ability to do them under pressure is what often wins you races. So, um, you know, it's one way you can sort of say, well, it was, in a sense, the stop was, you know, a precaution just to make sure we had the best tyres um, on the grid. It would have consolidated um, the lead of the race if we'd been able to perform it well. And we need to make sure in understanding it, like any other fault, you focus on root cause, not all the other sort of noise and chaos around it. Um, and it, you know, as, as you say, it's, yeah, with hindsight, if you could wind it back, it would have been great. We could have won the race on the tyres that we were on. Um, but we have to be able to, you know, do, do these stops. And, and this, you know, this is something that could have caught us out in any of the past three years. And it could have caught us out at the first race next year. Um, so it's, you know, it's something that's been there in the system. Um, and it was, you know, awfully un unfortunate for the drivers and desperately unfortunate for George um, that we found that today. 
um, but it, you know, it could have it could have caught us out at any point. And what were the ramifications of that radio malfunction that Valtteri's tires were put on George's car? Can you just um, yeah, explain it? Basically, we got half half of one driver's and half of another's, and then Valtteri we we sent because you're then missing tires from a set that then caused you know another problem that you've got a lot of guys who can't talk to each other because they haven't got transmit function and you can't have a coherent conversation um, in the middle of you know in that kind of environment trying to work out what to fit to the car and in the end we decided to refit the hard tires that Valtteri had been on um, just to make sure we could get out of the box and go so you know you think it yeah it, you know it's messy it's it's you know you look at it and you think for a world championship winning team it's really hard to kind of watch it happening and and um and not sort of feel really uncomfortable but as i said it, you know the pit crew um didn't do anything wrong it's simply that when you lose these messages it highlights that that, that the system falls down um and that's the thing that we. That's the thing that we'll. Uh, you know, we need to just focus on the root cause, and that's how we. That's how we deal with any problem, be it car performance, reliability, or or operations. We just get stuck into fixing it and come back stronger. And then a word, if we could, on on George. Uh, he then has a puncture. How serious was it? Uh, I mean, it, obviously, he couldn't have made it to the end of the race, so you had to pull him in again. Yeah, we lose about um, one and a half. PSI in the lap um, and we knew that we were okay to sort of watch it for a period um, but what you need to be careful is when you start to get down to low pressure um, which would be around you know 13 PSI 12 PSI you then start to trigger very rapid damage to the casing and the tyre itself can fail so we just you know we just took a lap to confirm this is absolutely real um, and and you're you're just sanity checking it, and then you just sort of pull the trigger on the pit stop, um, you know, bring him in and and fit another set, and then he's got another mountain to climb um, going out. But he, yeah, it, it was unfortunate. We've had a really rough time with punches here. We've had three three and two races, um, so it's not been good. And we, you know, we think we've done pretty well for the rest of the season, but. You know, it's just a random events and it's unfortunate. Um, certainly nothing that he did wrong. But yeah, it was the sort of fi- final nail in the coffin. Can we talk a little bit more about George and his weekend and, and all the sort of processes that you had to go through to, to make him comfortable? I mean, how difficult, first of all, was it to get him in the car, physically in the car? Um, it was difficult and it's been made difficult by the fact that we've not had such a tall driver for a very, very long time. And every year as you're looking for what can we, can we squeeze something here and there and uh, work on the packaging and, you know, put a bit more performance on the thing. Um, it becomes a less and less comfortable environment for a guy who's quite a bit over six foot tall. Um, you have to go back to things. Is it Jensen Button the last time you had a, a driver like that? Yeah, which, yeah, so we're, we're talking uh, 10 years ago. Um, and, the, you know, the thing with a, with a tall driver is they do learn to adapt. They can't have everything 
perfect all the all the time um you know and, and he's done a good job to drive around it and it's not just physically things being in the way and not being able to have your normal um seating position but also it's painful because you know we we can't quite get enough um space for him so he's being pinched and the seat's not quite perfect um so it's you know it's not just that you're cramped it's that it, it, it's actually hurts um to drive but he, you know he's done a done a great job and you know you think <clears throat> he was determined to fit <laughs> and he was determined to be able to drive it um but you know you think it won't it won't be a perfect environment for him this is sergio perez nation let's get to the main man tc insecure nice guys finish first fantastic wasn't it just everyone has rated his ability for years he has provided such a wonderful subplot so many times taking tires a long way and magicking his way on the podium and finally the door swings open for it to be on the way to the top step can you imagine how impressed we'd have been with last to third last to first outrageous i don't find the words i don't i'm a bit in the limbo right now you as a driver you dream for this for this time to be in this position for so many years basically we i worked my whole life for for a moment like this you know so to finally achieve it uh, it's it's difficult to digest i think it will take a couple of days but it's just something incredible, you know, especially coming back from last weekend where it was uh, a very disappointing day for us where we should have been in the, in the podium. Really, the last four races or so, we, we should have been on the, on the podium. But uh, we didn't give up, especially after lap one. Uh, we got knocked out again. You know, I, I don't really know what happened. I was already do, doing the corner and I, I, I got hit badly by, by behind. So I thought the, the race was over again. Um, but we, we managed to come back. How was the car after that incident on lap one? I guess must be good. <laughs> Outrageously brilliant. And, and, you know, for that, to get your first win like that must be an extraordinary feeling. And I loved, actually, there was such a priceless moment when he said in Spanish on the slowdown lap, uh, he said to his manager, make sure, Carilla, that my son is watching. He wanted to make sure that his son was watching that slowly. He wanted his his young son to see him. Yes, Jekko, P1. Yes. Lance P3, Jekko, Lance P3. Oh. Miss guys. So stay ahead of the guys if you can, Jekko. Stay ahead of the guys so you can line up properly when you come in. Good job, guys. Luis. Pick up the rubber, Checo. Pick up the rubber. And you can go to cool. Go to cool. Luis, escuchaste? Amazing, Checo. Well done. All the way to P0 once you stopped. His family's in Abu Dhabi at the minute. They're coming to the last race, but they weren't in Bahrain. So... Checo has the support of the entire paddock at the minute. He's a lovely guy. He's very popular. He's a great family man. His father, completely passionate about racing. Uh, I remember interviewing him way back 
uh, about Checo and he started crying mid-interview just because he gets so emotional about Was his that your son. interview technique, TC? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Prod him in the eye till he starts crying. But just a incredibly passionate man and I can't imagine how uh, father was feeling after that win but just you know and the uncertainty surrounding his future as well it just adds to the subplot doesn't it it's brilliant drive brilliant man and yeah let's hope he he gets that I th- hey I think he has to get that Red Bull now doesn't he you know you look at what Alex Albon ended up P6 but you know, it was, again, it wasn't a great weekend for him. And I think, I mean, let's bring it back to George Russell again. But I think if Checo Perez is driving that second Red Bull next year alongside Max Verstappen, Red Bull suddenly become a Constructors' Championship threat to such an extent that maybe Mercedes need George Russell. They can't rely on Lewis Hamilton bagging all of the points all of the time. Don't disagree with this at all, TC. Things have completely turned on their head in the last week. Suddenly we're thinking it's a safer bet to put George Russell in a Mercedes after one Grand Prix's distance. Suddenly, Sergio Perez, and the predominant thinking in the paddock, correct me if I'm wrong, but the predominant thinking in the paddock was that they were going to stay with Alex Albon. And then two things went against Alex this weekend. Sergio Perez, with the drive of his life, Yuki Tsunoda gets the super license points he needs by finishing third in the Formula 2 championship. The definition of a tough week for Alex Albon. Yeah, not help and and probably a little discombobulating for him because Christian Horner said on Friday that no, 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 Alex isn't part of Franz Tost's plans at Alpha Tauri next year. If he's not in a Red Bull, he'll be on the bench next year. And all of that playing in his mind. And I, such a difficult situation for Alex. He's, I, I firmly believe he's a better racing driver than he's looking at the moment. But I, I, you almost want him to take a step back, take some time out, clear your head, and hopefully come back in an Alpha Tower in 2022 and show people what you can do. But as Pierre Gasly did when he took a step back as well. But it's, it's tough times. But you can't not put Sergio Perez in that car. Travesty if that happens. One thing that Formula One has done with the last two races has reached a different audience to normal because it has been the story on the back page of the papers. It has been the main trending topic on social media. It has reached new eyeballs. Incredible escape last week. Incredible race and result this week with two new names for the majority of people who just check in. Did Lewis win? Yes, he did. Okay, cool. Sergio Perez, that's interesting, gets people's attention. It is impossible to explain to the casual fan that you would not have the fourth best driver in the world on the grid next year. Um, do you think he's in the best form of his career right now? I, it, it, and not just because of the win, just for the results that we've seen from when he got back in the car after he had COVID. Do you know what I was saying about Alex Albon taking a step back, taking a step away? Maybe missing those two races at Silverstone, horrible for him to be feeling so ill with COVID and goodness, we wished him well. But that time away... I don't think it's a coincidence that he's trounced Lance Stroll since then, really. You know, Lance has had bad luck. Of course he has. But actually, there's no getting away from the fact that Sergio Perez has been the dominant man there. And I think he's just, he came back with, in the form of his life, no doubt. 
but also I think he's been helped by Racing Point and the guys, the engineering team there led by Tom McCulloch have done a fantastic job in recent races of maximizing that racing point. It was if early on in the season, they just were only seeing eight tenths of what that car was capable of. And now suddenly we're seeing 10 tenths and we are actually seeing last year's Mercedes doing what it's meant to do, which is, is, is dominate. And, and I think in these last races, it has actually been the second fastest car on the grid and only Max Verstappen's brilliance has hauled the Red Bull ahead of it. Completely agree. A driver who has been with that team for a long time and his team on his side of the garage were vocal about how disappointed they were to be losing their driver. Um, and for all of those reasons and the fact that he's had to persist for so long that he's given us so many great stories when he's taken a podium out of thin air. I think back to the laps where uh, he had one chance to pass Sebastian Vettel in Baku and, and, and somehow found a way to do it. Just electric driving when it matters is the thing that gets you off your seat. It's the thing that makes you fall in love with Formula One. I think everyone was delighted for him. A Grand Prix that we will remember for a very, very long time. And almost lost in the narrative of Sergio Perez taking a fairy tale victory, we must underline and congratulate Esteban Ocon because he took a while to get back up to speed in Formula One after coming back in from the cold a year out. And it just shows you how much you lose these days without any actual testing. The simulator is fine, but it's a different life. You can be up until three in the morning, five in the morning, just running the laps to try and give the information back to the team at the track. Esteban Ocon is an engaging guy out of the car and he made a real breakthrough, you felt, at the Portuguese Grand Prix. He's taken that momentum all the way to a deserved Formula One podium and his talent has always been capable of that standard. It's advert time on F1 Nation and that means Manscaped. It's the festive season. You might be looking for the ultimate stocking stuffer. Look no further our sponsors Manscaped have the tools to make you win this year's stocking stuffer or white elephant competition hold on Manscaped do not talk yourself down you're trying to flog your product to the masses there are frankly a baffling number of you that listen to this podcast I mean we're really appreciative anyway back on point Manscaped is the only brand dedicated to below-the-waist grooming. You know what that means. Please don't make me elaborate any further. Great news. They've just released their products across Europe, Canada, and Australia. Now, in the advert script, they say talking points. Let's see what they are together. There is a product called the Crop Preserver. There's the Crop Reviver. The Crop Cleanser. And there's always an option for Grandad. The Crop Mop, there's the Foot Duster, the Shears 2.0, the Weed Whacker, the Lawn Mower 3.0. Right, this is the important bit. This is the bit that you need to listen to, and uh, this is the bit that brings in the money. Get 20% off and free shipping at manscaped.com with the code F1Nation. That's 20% off and free shipping at manscaped.com with the code of our podcast name, F1Nation. At the end of an extraordinary season the like of which we have never seen before. We wanted to bring you a real expert on the podcast. Tom Clarkson has about 400 Grand Prix under his belt. 
a newbie, a mere rookie compared to our next guest. We haven't had him on in a while and we thought it was high time to hear from Hall of Fame F1 journalist David Tremaine. I mean, let's start with Roman's accident. You're watching the race and you know, everything's going on and you think, wow, and then suddenly there's this car off the track, instant fireball. You really can't think of anything as bad as that since Gerhard at Imola in 89. And I remember how horrified we were then, how grateful we were that Sid was on the scene so hot so quickly. And we could see that Gerhard was out of the car pretty quickly. But to see this in the modern era, I mean, we've had a couple of fires, minor fires, thankfully, Heidfeld in Hungary, things like that. But to see a car explode in flames and you immediately, I hate to say this, but my immediate thought was, God, that's another obituary. Because you look at the, the flame and everything, the ball of flame, and you just think, my God, that is a big one. That's the car so badly compromised by that impact. And it's got to be a high impact. You know that because it's a short distance and there's a barrier. Then when you start seeing the scene and the picture of um, dear old Ian Roberts, my doctor, he's my doctor, by the way, and he's my buddy. But what a fantastic um, set of images, horrific, but the human interest and the human spirit and everything else of that with Ian and Alan and the two marshals. And then Roman, suddenly you're trying to figure out how did he come from the other side of the barrier? What's happened? Where's the car? And then you think, oh my God, the engine and gearbox are off the back end. The last time I saw a car that destroyed was Donnelly's, which happened right in front of me in Jerez in 1990. I mean, literally, Martin was, we all know, crumpled in the middle of the track, but it was like he had a backpack on. And that was all that was left, the belts and the seat and the back of the car. It's only later when you look at all the images, you realize how brilliantly that chassis stood up because I don't know what an engine and gearbox and rear end weighs these days, but it's got to be a reasonable amount. Ripped off the back, but still the rear bulkhead, completely uncompromised. And then when you look eventually and see, okay, the front, the, the bulkhead by the dashboard is cracked, like someone's nose is broken, but fundamentally that structure is intact. And then, man, I hated the halo. I did not like the halo, be the first one to admit it. But Jean was right. And you look at what that did, no question, that saved him. And the halo was so strong, it actually was stronger than the steel of the barrier. So suddenly you've got this situation where not only is this guy out of the fire, and 28 seconds in the fire, it's got to be horrific. And I wrote last week what Emerson told me when Joe Siffert was killed at Brands in 71. Everyone pulled up, the whole field pulled up, behind the wreckage, the burning wreckage. And Emerson said he got out of his car, he had his three layers on and helmet and everything else. He was going in there to get him out, come what may. And he said he got within 20, 15 feet and was physically just beaten back by the heat. And Ian's there with an open face helmet. So a sensational rescue. And, you know, how wonderful. You're already thinking, this guy's got three kids, he's married. This is just so sad. And then suddenly there, there he is, he's climbing out. He's lost a boot and he's burned his hands. Well, you know, if somebody said, look, if you're going to have a 137 mile an hour, 56 G shunt, 
and you'd be in fire for 28 minutes, but you'll burn the back of your hands and lose a boot. He'd have said, well, I don't really want to do that, but yeah, I'll take that. That could have been just so much worse. And I think what's great, I've written so much about this in the week, like everyone else, but it's a celebration of everything that Jackie Stewart started. And that Sid and Bernie and Balest and Max and people from then on um, invested so much time in. And I think for any sport to be able to have incidents like that, where the guy not only survives, but walks away. And how good was that? Roman, that's Donald Campbell all over again, when he crashed at 360 miles an hour at Bonneville in 1960 and fractured his skull. But he walked to the, from the ambulance to the hospital because of pride, and Roman did the same. Just sensational. You know, deliverance that endorses everything that Formula One stands for. The next thing is Lewis has tested positive for COVID. And you think, you're kidding. You know, poor Lewis, after all this sort of monastic life he's had this year, just hanging out with Angela and Roscoe in his bubble. And he relaxes his guard for two minutes and bang, he's got COVID. And then immediately I'm sort of thinking, oh my God. Wouldn't it be great if they put George in the Mercedes? And there's all the talk about Stoffel this and Stoffel that. I said, I like Stoffel and I wish Stoffel had had a better chance in Formula One. But you think, oh, they've got to put George in, surely. And if they do George, couldn't they put Jack in the Williams? That's just so logical. And my, I went to see some mates on Tuesday and they go, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? And I'm going, well, if there's a guy it's going to be George and Jack. Wednesday morning... Mrs. Tremaine is busy giving me all my birthday cards and everything. And then I suddenly go, yes! And she said, what, what? And I said, George is getting the Mercedes and Jack's getting the Williams. How cool is that? So what a busy 10 days. And then, as if all that isn't good enough, look what happened at the weekend in that race. Let me be absolutely honest about how I looked at the Saka Grand Prix. I'm a huge Lewis fan. I don't care who knows that. I like everything about the guy, pretty much. I like having a personal interest in races. I know, again, you shouldn't, but of course you do. And I kind of think this is going to be a bit trouble, isn't it? And then I hear about the George Jack thing. Friday, that's pretty cool, isn't it? He's, he's fastest in both free practice sessions. And you're kind of thinking, wow. And then you look at what Valtteri was up to, and he was having a scrappy day and whatever. And he kind of thinking, okay, well, don't get too carried away and then when you get Saturday morning with Valtteri Quaker and Max is, is there as well and you kind of think alright but huge expectations on the guy and I, I to be honest I'm not at all surprised with what he eventually did but it was such a big ask just to get out of that car relearn everything and they're quite complex as we all know and they've all got these funny little buttons to press this and press that and default this and function that but they're all in different places so and he doesn't fit I mean, imagine what it's like being six foot two i sat in tom price's shadow once and i'm not a fat boy but he, i couldn't i was sitting two inches higher than i wanted and i'm thinking how did he get in and i think he, we were about the same size six foot so okay it's tricky to fit and everything else and expecting him to go out there and be Lewis, 
is a big ask. And you look back and you think, Mario Andretti in the Lotus, 49, but uh, Watkins Glen in 68 sticks it on pole, didn't lead because Jackie got in front, but was quite happy to follow. And then the, the nose breaks and then the clutch goes, but I mean, that was impressive. Yano truly, remember when Panis broke his legs and Yano in 97 went to Prost from Minardi and led in Austria. And you're thinking, I've always had a big thing about this truly kid. And I remember seeing uncanny thing in, in Australia when he made his debut. It was like Ayrton was sat in the car. If you looked at Yano's eyes through the, the visor, visor opening on his helmet, it was like looking at Ayrton. And it was such a fantastic thing. And then I think the engine broke and Jag won. And of course, Max, that sensational victory in 2016 in Barcelona. I think those are the outstanding ones. So here we are, we're sort of thinking, if you expect George to do all of that with all of these things that he's having to figure out, it's a big ask. And okay, FP3, perhaps that's, it's not the true picture because he's not seventh or eighth quickest, really. But, you know, if you expect this kid to be on pole, you're asking a lot. And then all through quality, he just chips away and gets better and better and better and better. And to be 0 0.026 seconds off pole, whoa, you know, it doesn't matter what Valshi was or wasn't doing. <clears throat> whether he got a little bit wrong here or, or there. George was just a genuine contender. There was no luck involved. That was the real deal. And then, bang, there he is straight into the lead. And Valtteri has the tank slapper in turn two, sort of delays the others anyway. And George is checked out. And then, like, like I always do, you're looking at every single lap, you're looking at the lap times and the gaps. And it's obvious that this kid's comfortable doing what he's doing. Just awesome, just like Max, just the whole way through. Okay, it was beginning, Valtteri was beginning to come back at him after the sort of stop. It's almost too good to be true. It's not like I'm a negative person, but I'm just thinking, oh, please let this keep going, please let this keep going. He's got this done. It's done, even though Valtteri's closing, he's going to be okay. And then, of course, we all know what happened. Mm. He could have won that race twice. Even with the problem with the tyres and everything else, he could have done it. I'll tell you something that really impressed me, which I thought was very fair, was the way the stewards reacted. Now, stewards get a lot of aggro, a lot of criticism for people. I'm, I'm a massive fan of the FIA stewards and have been, I, I would say from sort of 2010 onwards, there has been such common sense with the stewards. I like the fact there's a driver steward. Could you imagine if after all that, George's, well, if nothing else, I've got three championship points. I've broken my duck on that. And then they say, by the way, sorry, mate, you're disqualified for something that's nothing to do with him. And for them not to do that, I thought that was a brilliant, fair-minded, sensible decision. Again, which just, it's good for Formula One. Been a funny season, hasn't it? And I, I don't know about anyone else. But I'm sort of mentally in a different time scale because this is when races normally happen. It seems old, it's December. But number one in this season, I think Chase Carey has done such an awesome job to get a 17-race championship. And there's never been a championship as intense as this with three triple headers. 
I think Joe said something the other day about 16 races in 22 weeks. You know, that just shows, and okay, we've had three high profile COVID cases, but I think it's sensational how well it's been managed. It's been such an intense season. Of course, it's Lewis dominating, but to me, funny enough, I don't really, the results say that he has. But Valtteri's taken the fight to him as much as he can in quality. Max is always there. The other thing I think that's extraordinary that makes this so different, apart from just the general way everyone's got together to make it work, is we've been to some old school tracks again, and the public love them. Portugal, Imola, Magello, places like that, Turkey again. We thank Hall of Fame F1 journalist David Tremaine for his thoughts on an incredible period of Formula One history. 583 races David has done. And when you hear him talking about Martin Donnelly's accident at Jerez back in 1990 or Gerhard Berger's fiery crash at Imola in 1989, he was there. He was at the track. He's been around a wee while as DT and he loves it now as much as ever he did. It's sensational to hear from him. Really is, and you can tell that with every single answer. TC, unbelievably, we have reached the end of the 2020 Formula One season. We have one Grand Prix to go in Abu Dhabi. And as is always the case at the end of the pod, (coughs) I'm rushing to the airport because uh, the entire Formula One paddock has been transported on 10 chartered flights from Bahrain to Abu Dhabi. We're then being bussed from the airport in Abu Dhabi to Yaz Island, where the Yaz Marina racetrack is based. And once we're on the island, we're not allowed off. No one new is allowed on. We're not allowed off. It is one self-contained bubble. Uh, So that's unlike anything we've experienced before this year. I don't think it's going to be a laugh a minute, AJ. We're not allowed out of our (laughs) hotels, apparently. (laughs) But um, yeah, last one. Isn't it incredible, though? that we've reached 17 races. Incredible. It's unbelievable. I think it's unbelievable that Formula One got it up and running at the period of the year that it did. And to conduct an international championship during it, what an achievement for top brass at Formula One. Yep, couldn't agree more. And of course, this is going to be Chase Carey's last race in charge. Uh, He will have loved the last 10 days, won't he, AJ? Crikey. Formula One is front page, back page. You know, there's a buzz about it. There really is a buzz about it. And, you know, let's not forget that even in this last race, yes, the championships have long since been won by Mercedes and Lewis Hamilton, but there's still that really interesting battle for P4 in the Drivers' Championship. Daniel Ricciardo saying, yes, it does give, as a driver, you do think about that. It does give these races a little bit more meaning. And then, of course, there is still, in theory, that battle for P3 and the constructors as well. Although it seems that Racing Point now have got that RP20 singing. And I think it's going to be very difficult for anyone to beat them now. But it is, in theory, still open. So there's a lot to battle for. There is indeed. And now everyone knows doesn't matter if you get spun around at turn four. doesn't matter if you're plumb last. Keep your foot in. And as everyone likes saying these days, just send it and you just don't know what's possible. Well done to Sergio Perez. Well done to you for listening all the way to the end of the penultimate F1 Nation of the Year. We are back next week with the season finale. All your favourite guests 
and I have missed my COVID test once again recording this podcast. Tom, you have to run to the airport. I have to run for my final COVID test of the year. Join us next week. You don't even have to leave a review anymore. You don't have to subscribe. All you have to do is join us for the final F1 Nation of the Year. That is all we've got time for this week. We will speak to you next. Thank you.